Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our Lord as we finish now this section of the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Gospel of John. I'll begin John chapter 20, verse 19, and continue through the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the, uh, in, into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, let these words and the words of my mouth as I preach be acceptable in your sight and filled with your spirit of grace and peace. Grant and strengthen faith here in this service, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. And so we not only come to the end of the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but really for us the end now of the story of Jesus, the Son of God, according to the, the apostle whom Jesus loved, as John refers to himself throughout this, uh, this book. Uh, chapter 21, which we will cover later on, serves as an epilogue of sorts. Really, this closes the story as, as, it's, as it's laid out for us in its literary form. It was written, and this is what he says at the end of this section, it was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. And I want to, we'll be reviewing some of what took place in these, uh, in these 20 chapters, but I want you to see very closely here that, that what we are to believe is, is laid out for us very plainly. Very plainly in the scriptures. This is not about having a general warm belief in a, uh, in a benevolent God, benevolent power somewhere up, in the, uh, up in, in the sky somewhere. And that we should now have warm and benevolent and good feelings for one another. That we are basically good people and we should just enjoy the goodness of one another. Now what we've watched is Jesus proving to us that he in fact was God. That he was fully man and fully God, and that he bore on the cross our sin because of our rebellion and the promised wrath of God as punishment because of his holiness and his justice. 
Um, you know, too, too often what we think is we have a tendency to think that only a few people out there, over here and out there, are bad and really bad at the core. Rather than what Jesus was making clear and all of the Gospels make clear and all of the writings of the New Testament, in fact, all of the Bible makes clear. We are all sinners by nature. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus comes, delivers us um, through these signs and his teachings, and then through his death and resurrection, provides the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Well, how do I get that? How do I get that payment for the sins? Well, he says, you must believe. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. You must believe not only that he's the Christ, the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God. That he's God himself, as described and promised in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, for centuries. That he's the one who has come and fulfilled all that was given to us, and that he came for you. You have to believe that he came for you. That if he had not come, you have no, you have no chance before God. You have no standing before God. You have no hope before God. But do you believe that he came for you, for you? Then life everlasting is yours. Then forgiveness of sin is yours. Then, then, then the ability to be in communion with the one who is the great I am is yours and is yours forever and ever. That's, that's, that's what we've been preaching here through, through John, the, through these 20 chapters of John. Now, what this means is that this book was written certainly for unbelievers as a testimony to the good news. And so it's, it's very common if you want someone to ne never read the Bible before or they, how do I find out about who Jesus is? It's very common for people to say, why don't you read through the Gospel of John? Or why don't I read through the Gospel of John with you? Because John says, this is written that you might believe. And so he particularly has that in mind. He has unbelievers in mind. You, you might recall he's writing decades after this. He's living in Ephesus, most likely. The historians will, will tell us as we have some indications through the scriptures. He's in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he, he's dealing with all kinds of pagan gods and, and the worship of the state, the worship of the Roman emperor Caesar himself, who declares himself to be Lord and God. Remember that as we go through the passage. Okay, so he's writing to, in, in Ephesus probably to many unbelievers to read, and he wants them to see that Jesus is, in fact, the, the Savior of the world. But, but just as surely as it was written for believers, uh, as for, for unbelievers, it was written for us. It was written for believers to enrich that life in his name. To enrich, to, to make that life that is named go deeper, go broader, work itself out your fingertips in the way that you live your life, in the way that you sacrifice like Jesus for others, in the way that we bring forth the light in the world around us. The way, way we understand our roles, who we are as people, what, um, what destiny God has for us. This book is written for us as well, to spread out the blessings of belief. To spread, when, when belief, when God grants faith, the blessings that flow from that faith, because of that faith, are immeasurable and eternal. And so, and, and, and this book talks about that, lays that out for us. This gospel gives us the spreading out of the blessings of belief to deepen our devotion to the lamb that was slain and to join with the disciples who said they were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 20, they were glad when they saw the Lord. You really are rose, risen from the dead. Remember, we've seen how the, the disciples, the, the, the apostles didn't have to come up with some concoction to, of lies to, to tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't think he was going to rise from the dead. They're shocked. And then we have Thomas here in our example in the text, who when, they, when he hears from 
the men that he has served with for three years tell him, we've seen the Lord, he's like, oh, give me a break. This whole resurrection story, it's just a story, guys. They're like, no, no, we saw the Lord. We saw his pierced hands. We saw his side. We spoke with him. We were with him. And, and, and he's like, I, I don't know. I don't believe. Unless I get a chance to actually touch him and I get to feel his side, there's no way I'm believing. So it, it's just another example of this, uh, this purported lie that, that the resurrection as a real fact in history, in space and time, doesn't matter. It matters. It's, it's, it is the difference between just one of any other uh, forms of religion and the fact that we worship a God who came to us in the flesh, who died for us, who was buried and rose from the dead for our justification. This is different than any other form of religion, different than any other uh, forms of belief. And it's ours. It's ours for the taking. It's ours for the believing. Okay, so... I want you to notice a couple of things that, that John wants to make important about, uh, about the blessings of belief. And, and the first is a little bit of a, of a side note, but I have a, an application for us, to, and I want, you to, I want you to see this. Um, do you remember back in, um, in, verse, uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 20, um, this is when Mary Magdalene runs to the tomb, and John makes a point, you already knew this, but John wants to make a point, it was the first day of the week, it was Sunday. Okay, then we come to our passage here, verse 19, and it, it's, it's the same day at evening. And then John wants to make clear, and it was the first day of the week. So John wants to make, makes, wants to make it very clear when Jesus rose. He rose from the dead on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And he reiterates this again and again. Thomas wasn't there and missed the blessing of belief that evening. And John tells us then in verse 26 that it was eight days later, and which would be Sunday again, according to the way the Hebrews would count. So the, the very next Sunday, Jesus appeared again with the disciples along with Thomas. Thomas is now with them this time. So we have first days and eighth days that are, that are being brought forward to us. Why? Why, why is this important? Well, eighth-day Sabbaths were special Sabbaths throughout the celebration of the, of the feast days in the Old Covenant. They were always an extra kind of an add-on to, to some of the week-long feasts. You'd, you'd celebrate for seven days, and then on an eighth day, you would have particular new sacrifices and blessings that would take place. Uh, for instance, the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus celebrated, and we read about it in John chapter 7, it was, in, it, it was on that eighth day, we we're told particularly, on that eighth day, that, that great day of the feast, it says in, in John 7, that Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever, who, who, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And because of the sacrifices that were made on that eighth day, we saw how, how Jesus was saying, those sacrifices that you've been practicing on the eighth day of the week, in, in, in this particular feast, um, at, the, at the end of that week, for years and centuries. You need to know that, the, that they were all pointing to me. I'm the water. I'm the living water. You, if anyone thirsts, come to me. And so we see that this eighth day was, Jesus understood, this was a very important point to be made. Males, you remember, in the Old Testament, uh, males were circumcised on the eighth day, marking them as covenant members. And in the old creation, there were six days of work, followed by a seventh day of rest. 
Well, John gives us seven signs in the book of signs. That's the first 11 chapters. So there's all kinds of signs and miracles that Jesus did. We, we, saw, uh, we see all kinds of other ones throughout the other gospels. John chooses seven. Most of them only in John's gospel. John chooses seven. And then it, and then it moves on to the, to the week of the passion from chapter 12 on is all one week, um, the last week of Jesus' life and then his death and resurrection. And, but he gives us one more sign, an eighth sign. And the eighth sign is, of course, the greatest sign. It is the sign of the resurrection. It's the miracle of God raising his son from the dead, of Jesus coming forth from the dead. That first day, then, is like an eighth day, an eighth sign, eighth day, first day of the new week. Well, then, what do we see here? We have a new week. We have a new creation. And in this new creation, the first day is a day of rest. It's a day of rest, and we rest because the work of the new creation had been finished. It had been finished on the cross. It's finished on the cross and declared on the eighth day. It's declared to be finished as Jesus gives us his first day of rest. We, 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 we enter into the new creation without doing any work. It's all been done for us. We begin by resting in the finished work of Christ. We rest because the work of the new creation has been finished. And so then we go through the week working, working out what Christ has worked in. This is, this is also just so wonderful to see. We do not work in any way to earn our salvation. We work because of our salvation. We do not work in order to get forgiven. We, we work because we are forgiven. We don't work to be freed from our slavery to our sins and our lusts. We work because we have been freed from our slaveries and our lusts. This, Paul wants to make this so clear to us about the gift of faith and, 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 and what comes from that faith in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. So it's not that we don't have any works to do, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As I said in my call to worship, what we should see is this is the first day of the week. Please change your thinking. Um, weekends, weekends are, are really a creation of Henry Ford. They, they really are. Okay? So here's what happened. Um, for the most part, as the Industrial Revolution was going on, um, men, women, and children were working Monday through Saturday, and they were working up, up to over 100 hours a week. There, there was no limitation. Some child labor laws were put into place and, and, and some unions were formed and different things began to happen to, to, to uh, care for what was really being an overwhelming work uh, world that was going on. And so Henry Ford, as he began the, uh, uh, doing these assembly lines and all this, began to think about how to make work more effective. And one of the things he began to realize was that if we, if we had a set amount of time, a set amount of hours, then we could actually accomplish more And because, our, because the people who would work would have better attitudes, they'd be more rested, they'd have the, what we now call our work-life balance. I don't think Henry Ford talked about a work-life balance, but, 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 that's, uh, but, but that kind of thing he had in mind, and he established... Um, a 43-hour work week, <laughs> which later on became a 40-hour work week. And you hear people talking about making it a 35-hour week. There's, there's news out there about trying to change it, too. But when that happened, that became a Monday through Friday thing. And from that time on, the mindset of Americans and others began to think about five days of work and then the weekend. 
We have all kinds of country songs about that, right? You know, you're working for the weekend. It's all about working for the weekend. And so we have a tendency to think of Saturday and Sunday as being the end of the week. And it's the, and it's the rest that we get because we worked. Now, I really think it's important for us to change our mind and our thinking about that. Because we don't work so that we can rest. We rest. And out of that rest comes forth good works. Out of the rest of being finished and made new and forgiven and raised up by Christ, we go to work. We go to work in all kinds of ways. Maybe it's a vocation where you go. Maybe it's the work of the relationships in your families, of raising children. Maybe it's the work of bringing the gospel to bear in any of a number of ways. But all of those works flow from what happened right here, the first day of the week, the celebration of the resurrection, being told you're new, being renewed in that newness, being built up in that newness. And, and then from that newness, going forth out of this eighth day, this first day of the new creation week, into the, into the week. Tomorrow's day two. Today, Sunday, is day one of the week that God has given you, and you get to start that week with celebration and rest before him. That's, that's, this is all tied to, to why the, the church calendar changed and we, and we worship on Sunday as God's people, as God's covenant people who used to work on Saturday in the old covenant administration, now, now cel- uh, celebrate on the 7th. We now celebrate on the 8th on the first day. It is here that we corporately, corporately meet with Jesus. This is where we corporately meet with Jesus. We're promised this in Hebrews chapter 12, particularly in verse 24, when we're told we, as we assemble, we are gathered into the heavenlies with all who have gone before us and a numeral number of angels and Jesus. It says Jesus. We're gathered together corporately with Jesus. It's not that you can't be with Jesus the rest of the week, but there's a corporate significance that, that, that takes place in our gathering on this Lord's Day. This is why it is such a blessing and critical to attend the Lord's Day worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ together. Thomas missed the blessing. In our passage here, Thomas missed the blessing. And Thomas is the one with wavering faith. Thomas missed the blessing of this first day being with, with his brothers and, brothers and sisters. I think they were there as well. Um, and, and missing that blessing. For those who are wavering in their faith or faithfulness, don't miss the blessing. At this gathering, we begin the service with words much like Christ's first words were recorded here. The first words, peace be with you. And we begin our service with similar words. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, the first day. Here we are. Here's what happens on this first day, on the very first first day. There is this blessing, that what came from the blessing of belief? What well, was peace with God. Just as Jesus somehow passed through the linen cloths of his burial, we talked about this last Lord's Day, so he somehow passed through the locked doors and stood in the midst of them. We are told in verses 19 and 20 that they they had shut themselves up in, in uh, in some room somewhere where they were assembled, and they, and they did so for fear of the Jews. And remember, it's not that they were, they were Jews. It wasn't fear of the Jews generally. When, when John uses this word, he's talking about the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities, who, would, who they would have been afraid. They've killed our leader. If they've killed our leader, they're coming for us. They're, they want to stop this movement. And so they're hiding in fear of, what, of what's going to happen. And one of the things they would be, this is almost ironic if you think about this. 
One of the things they would have been afraid of, Matthew tells us that the sol- some of the soldiers were paid off and said, go tell them that the disciples came and stole the body. Okay? So if, 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 you were, if you were one of the disciples and you were afraid that the authorities might show up, what is the last thing you would want to have in that room when the authorities show up? And there's Jesus' body all of a sudden. Right? So... There's Jesus' body all of a sudden. And I, I can imagine, I imagine God, or, uh, them all shaking with fear, not just because Jesus has somehow appeared, but also because uh, who's going to be knocking at the door here in just a minute? And Jesus gives these words, peace. Peace be with you. It's all okay. Jesus was the first hippie. Peace be with you. We see it again this. He proclaims peace to them. Many Christians today, many, we, we pray for persecuted Christians all around the world. Many Christians today, living under government persecution, continue to meet secretly and in fear. They, like the disciples gathered on the Resurrection Sunday, will find that Christ cannot be kept from joining his people in their need. They didn't expect it that first first day, but the second first day they are gathered again. It's, it's almost, it's, it's, it seems to be they're expecting Jesus again. And he does show up. They've talked Thomas into being there. And he does show up that next Lord's Day. But there's still, in, in that passage, there's still, if you look at it, it's uh, in uh, verse, this is interesting to notice, um, it, it, in verse uh, 24, well, actually, uh, 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut. So Jesus still either passes through the, the walls um, because he's more real than, real than than our world, or he somehow materializes in their presence. Um, but he shows up there again on that second Lord's Day, and they're still, they're still concerned. They've still got the doors locked. Well, he proclaimed peace to them, and while this might be overlooked as a common greeting, um, some would just say, well, that's just, that's just what the Jews would say to one another when they gather, peace be with you, shalom, they would, they would say. John connects it with Jesus, though, showing them the signs of that procured peace with God. He takes time, he says, peace be with you, and then he shows them. Why, why is there peace? He shows them his hands and his side. What else might be going through the apostles' minds if Jesus were to show up? They were the ones who deserted him in the garden. There's no record of them, with the exception of John, showing up at the crucifixion. They have scattered in fear. They have blown it in their own minds of sticking with their, um, with, with, with their leader, with Jesus. Peter has denied him three times and run off weeping because of his denying Christ. They're torn up. And they, I can imagine them being there thinking, Jesus is going to walk in and go, so what happened? Where were you? Shame on you. He walks in, he opens his mouth, and John says, these are the first words that comes out, uh, come out of his mouth to his disciples. Peace be with you. Look at my hands, my side. I know you've fallen short. He doesn't say this. But what do the, ha- what are the, what are the pierced hands and the, and, and the side wound show? I, I, I know you've fallen short. We've all fallen short. But look at these hands. Look at the side. There is peace for you. There's peace for you like 
no one else can have. John connects this, this with the signs that had procured peace with God, his hands and his side. In the Revelation account that I read to you at the call to worship, John records seeing a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus doesn't lose the physical marks of, of, of these particular wounds. I don't think that's an indication that all of us will have in any way. We'll have the same, we'll have all necessarily the wounds um, that we have from here. But, but he does particularly, and he does particularly because they are the signs of our being bought, of, of our lives being paid for um, by those wounds. Jesus' wounds were a sign of glory, the glorious work of redemption. And so I think John, this is why John mentions this three times in this passage, verse 19, 21 again, and 26, he says, peace be with you. The doctrine of our justification by faith alone is a rich and glorious doctrine and worthy of great study. We could go through Romans chapter 4, for instance, and talk about the, the details of what it means to be justified by faith, but I won't do that this morning. In our passage, what we see are the results of that justification, being declared righteous by God. What does it mean that you've been declared righteous by the work of God's um, payment for our sins through his son's death and then resurrection? Well, Paul makes clear after discussing in great detail Romans chapter 4, he begins Romans chapter 5 with these words. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Time and again, I, I want to remind us that when we come before God, he already knows the sins you're going to confess. He already knows your shortcomings. He already knows the encumbrances that keep you from being fully devoted before him. And his son has paid for it all. His son has paid for it all. And the holy God, of all creation in the whole universe, says to you as you come before him, peace, peace be with you. It's all taken care of. Peace, come, come and be with me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God only one way, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pierced hands, pierced feet, pierced side. Many refused to believe that they were enemies of God with the full wrath of God justly upon us. But we were. Otherwise, Jesus didn't need to die. It would be ridiculous for him to do so. But Paul, in Romans chapter 5, goes on to say, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, that is, made friends, reconciled, brought back into relationship. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And it is only by that saving work of Jesus, then, that we can be reconciled to God. But we are then. We are at peace. We are friends. Friends of God. Now, what happens when that gets a hold of you? What happens when that message gets a hold of you, of your heart? Well, in verse 20, we see the disciples. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It deepens devotion. It deepens our, uh, the blessings of belief. They flow out with a deeper devotion, the joy of our salvation, 
the joy and, and lightness of having been forgiven, of that burden like the burden Pilgrim has on, in Pilgrim's Progress falling off of his back. That, when you hear, peace be with you, that's what you hear. That's what you experience when you receive that by faith and then communion with God. And then he says, verses 21, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And, and this, is, this might be considered John's version of the Great Commission in, uh, in chapter 28 of Matthew, Go and make disciples of all the nations. He, he also then, it says, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And this might be his, his reenacting or a, a sign of prophecy of what, what Luke records in, in, Luke ch in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remain in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you with authority and power, and then you'll be witnesses to me in all, in all of the world. In, in these verses, um, when Jesus breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The, these words are cryptic and have been subject to much interpretive debate. But I think if we remember the new creation language that John is using all the time throughout here, this helps you to understand what he's talking about. For when it says that he breathed on them, he uses a word <coughs> that is only used one time in the New Testament. It is right here. And it's only used one time in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well. And that's Genesis 2-7, where it says that God breathed on Adam and he became a living soul. So he breathes on Adam and Adam becomes a living soul. And that same word is used only one time by John saying that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Because new life, new creation is taking place. New creation language is here. And, and so now they can speak with the authority of the breath of God. And this recalls the resurrection image, image, uh, imagery of Ezekiel 37. If you have a Bible and you want to see this in Ezekiel 37... There was promise of just a kind of breathing that would bring new life that Ezekiel prophesies about in, in, in chapter 37. Ezekiel 37 says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, there's a spirit, <coughs> and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. They were really dead. They were really dry bones. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And so I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So he used to preach, dry bones live. He's, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with the skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So Jesus was reenacting both this creation language and the creation language that was prophesied by Ezekiel. That Jesus would, would breathe on us. He would breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit and that breath of the Holy Spirit brings us to new life. Like dead bones coming to life. That's what it is to be converted. Dead bones coming to life, breath of God, new person, transformed, made new, made holy, made right with God, with a, a whole new destiny in front of you. And then he says, 
um, he says, um, uh, as I was sent, so, so I send you. And so we are sent to preach this good news and the power of the Spirit. And the church is particularly sent. Individuals can certainly share the gospel and should. But the church is the declarative voice of God to the world. To go and proclaim, dry bones, live. And watch the Spirit of God do his work. The church then also declares the forgiveness of sins to all who would repent and believe. Now, the church doesn't have the power and authority to forgive or retain sins. Um, we don't carry around a box with some kind of magic that we can, as, as individuals or as, um, as the church, forgive people's sins, which is why we don't have people come to us and confess sins to hear from us, I am now able to forgive your sins. But we are given the authority, the power and authority, um, to forgive or retain sins, to declare this to declare that Jesus has forgiven your sins when people have confessed them. We're given this, and then also to declare that Jesus retains his judgment against them when they have not repented. So the church has the ability to say, the word of God says this, and in the authority of the word of God, I am able to say to you, your sins are forgiven. In the same way, the, 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 the God has granted the authority and told the church to say, to those who will not repent who will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who will not repent of their sins, <coughs> your sins are retained. You are not forgiven. You are not, you are not right with God. And, and the, the, uh, you could also take a look at this teaching in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Also, the Westminster Confession of Faith discusses this. This is all part... The, the reason this is happening, again, new creation language, what's, what are Adam and Eve told to do? Be fruitful and multiply, take dominion of the earth, spread yourselves out over it. It's all for you. Well, this is dominion language as well. The dominion language is go out and tell people their sins are forgiven. Repent and believe and come to Christ and go change the world. Go take dominion of this world in the preaching of the gospel. Listen to um, 1 John chapter 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? <coughs> John doesn't leave room for any other reason, any, anything else that overcomes the world. Faith is all that overcomes the world. And it's not just faith in anything, but it's faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in Jesus as the Son of God, who is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. This is the blessing of belief. The blessing of belief is that you overcome the world. The blessing of belief is in your little part of the world, in, in your little part of taking dominion, in the calling that God has given to you, in, in the vocations that you will do this week, in, in all of the responsibilities you have, how do you know? Will you overcome? Will you overcome this week? Faith, belief, and the blessings of that belief will be the strength that God gives you will be the empowerment that God gives you to overcome the world, to walk by faith in joy with the Holy Spirit. But Thomas was the straggler. Thomas wasn't there. And so we're told that Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them. <coughs> the other disciples therefore said to him, Hey, we've seen the Lord. And he says to them, something like bah humbug, Unless I see in his hands in the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. 
So remember, he was, Thomas was the one who, who said that they were all going to die if they went up to Judea where they wanted to kill Jesus. Um, when Lazarus is dead and <coughs> he says, okay, we're going to go back up to Judea and I'm going I'm I'm to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And the disciples are like, you know, there's wanted posters for you all over Judea. Um, and, and Jesus says, we're going. And Thomas says, all right, guys, let's go with, we're all going to go die with him. This is, Thomas struggles with his faith a little bit. He's like me. So he had not assembled um, when, the, when the disciples were there on the first eighth day. They must have sought him out, telling him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said he would not believe <coughs> unless he put his own finger into the wounds. Excuse me. Thomas did assemble with the believing disciples the next Lord's day. And Jesus again appears and says, peace to you. He doesn't say, hey, I heard about what your, your doubts are. He says, peace to you. And then he even gives in to the demands that Thomas requires. He says, go ahead, put your hands in my side, put your fingers in my, uh, in my hands, go ahead. Which reminds me of the end of the hymn that Paul records in 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Oh, how many times have you not been faithful? Have you doubted God's goodness in your life? Have you doubted his sovereign care over you? Have you thought, That's, I guess I'll go with him. We're just all going to die. Jesus says to you, peace. And let me prove to you again one more time that my resurrection life is for you as well. That's what he says. In fact, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem that, <clears throat> that, that Thomas actually touches him. Because what he says is... Um, uh, he, he commands him, do not, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me. Maybe he did touch him also. But the emphasis was that he had seen him. <coughs> the other thing that happens is Jesus says, um, do not be unbelieving, but believing. He, it's, it's as though God is the one that grants faith. I don't want you to be an unbeliever anymore. I want you to believe in me. And with that word, with the word of Christ, now believe in me, Thomas believes. <coughs> and, and this leads to a profession of devotion. My Lord and my God. And I reminded you this the first time we met Thomas in the Gospels. Church history teaches us that Thomas, a faithful apostle, would take the gospel all the way to southern India. He becomes the, um, the saint of, of, of India, bringing, bringing the gospel there in, in that first century. He was martyred for his faith there. And it's possible even that he went beyond India into other Asian, uh, into, uh, into what it would be, we would consider Asia as well, but we don't know. And so this transformation is recorded for us right here in the gospel of John. Now let me, let me close here by looking one more time at these last three verses. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Signs and miracles accompanied the ministry of Jesus, and these signs were used to declare his authority and power, to point 
to point people to him as the Messiah. They continued in the days of the apostles. The apostles had the same ability to do these kinds of miracles that Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, Paul writes, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The apostles were able to do the kinds of miracles that Jesus did, authorizing them as his sent ones with all the authority and power of Jesus. And so, during that period of time, signs accompanied the preaching of the gospel until the time that the word of God (coughs) is completed. And I'm not saying that miracles don't still happen, but I'm saying that miracles, miracle workers and, and those who have signs is not gifted to a person like it was to the apostles in that day because something else, something greater uh, than that has been given to us, and it is the word of God, it is, and it is hearing the word of God. A new, this is the new blessing that now comes to those who believe without seeing, but rather by hearing. We don't have to see over and over again. We hear and we can read and we can meditate and we can be with the thing that transforms our lives constantly in an ongoing way with the word of God. And so he says, these are written. John, John now stops to make this comment. These are written that you may believe. <coughs> it is through the written word, which, by the way, um, I, was, I did a re- little research on this. It was until... Um, it was before the 1700s, but just before the 1700s, that people actually regularly began to read without speaking aloud. Okay, until that time, during Jesus' time, and, and then for centuries after, you read, when you were reading, you read aloud. <coughs> there might have been a number of reasons that happened. Um, one of the reasons was because literature, the ability to have anything written down, was a, a rich privilege that you had. Before the Gutenberg Press, um, the cost of a book was, was enormous. We couldn't afford it. And so usually, reading God's word was a communal activity. You didn't, just read, you didn't read something by yourself. It was too valuable. It was too rich. You read it with your family. You read it with your friends. You read it in the public. And so you were used to reading aloud. So when we, we, when we say um, that, you, that these things were written, you shouldn't be thinking, well, they're written so you can go, the, go off in your corner all by yourself and just read by yourself. Nothing wrong with doing that. That's a great blessing that's been given to us now. But, but in John's mind, in the first century mind, the idea of, being, of something being written is so that it would be declared, so it would be read, so it would be spoken and heard. One reader, many, many ears. How did the word of God come to people? By hearing, not by reading, by hearing. The vast majority of people who come to Christ in the first century, second century, third century is because they heard, not because they read. Okay, that, 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 was, that, that was, uh, it was something that was new for us once it became available at, uh, with so much less expense. So, my, what's my point? Well, then listen to what he's saying. Truly, Jesus, he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. <clears throat> well, it is then the preached word. It is, it, is the, it is the one who gets up and is able to take the word of God and preach it, and you hear it, and God's spirit is at work, and you hear Jesus by the spirit speaking the truth to you. This is what Paul's getting at. In Romans chapter 10, he says, how then shall they call on him whom they've not believed? And and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And and how shall they hear without a preacher? 
And, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? And Jesus said, as, as I've been sent, so I send you. As it is written, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So then also, when, Jesus, when John writes from this written word now, because the signs are, are, of the apostles are going to come to an end, and he's writing these things down so they will be carried for generations and generations. Paul, John writes and he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So who's John talking about? Well, his comment is for you, and for you, and for you too. John, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, John didn't know your name. The Holy Spirit did. And these things were written. They are being proclaimed. They were put down so that they would be carried on for centuries and centuries and centuries. So that you would hear. So that you would believe. So that you would be taken up by the word of God and by the power of his spirit. And you would receive eternal life. You would be made new. Your devotion would be made deeper. Your understanding of God's work in your life and the world around you would be made more and more clear. These things were written so that you might believe. And we, the church, have been sent with these words, empowered by the Spirit, to proclaim forgiveness of sins to the nations. The church needs to repent of its angst and embarrassment with the Word of God. We are constantly attacked these days that the word of God says these hateful things or there are these inconsistencies or these are just fables and uh, fairy tales. They're not, they don't, aren't, they, they, these things didn't really happen. We must not be afraid or embarrassed by any of the word of God because it is the power of God for salvation. Listen to the beginning of the book of Romans by, um, by the apostle Paul. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What is going to bring about that belief? It is going to be the proclaimed word of God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And this is the blessing of belief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've told us that in this service of worship, your people are brought before Jesus in much the same way these disciples found Jesus in their midst. Well, then let us all hear his words. Peace be with you. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And grant gladness of heart in our full fellowship with you. For we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And all blessing such belief grants. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are the new choirs of Jerusalem, so let's stand and sing at number 536.